looking at really the first part of our theme verse, verse 3 of chapter 2. But I'm going to read, starting in verse 1, all the way down through verse 8, just to get some context for us to reorient ourselves around this passage of Scripture. Dan gave us a good introduction of kind of the whole context of Thessalonians, but again, we're going to drill in down to just the first phrase, really, of verse 3. But starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now I want to start with kind of, it might seem out of place, this introduction, but I want to start with thinking about comedy or satire. You know, comedians have an ability to take a truth and present it in such a way that people who might disagree with this truth, they can't help but recognize the reality of it. And they, and they do it involuntarily through laughter. And so a comedian will say something, and even if you in your mind have said, I don't believe that, your laughter will give you away that really you do if you laugh at the comedian. And comedians do this. It's, it's an amazing thing. And so the Babylon Bee, obviously we know is, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the Babylon Bee, Christian satire, and they've done this in a masterful way in many ways through articles and videos, but I'm, I'm thinking in particular of a video that came out maybe a year and a half ago, and I'm sure some of you have seen I know Dan has seen it because he sent me a clip of it on Instagram a while ago, and it's the apostles, and it's, it's a skit, it's a video, and the, it's the apostles sitting around a fire at night right after Jesus was crucified. And they're all downcast and sorrowful and grieving, and, and they ask Peter, the leader, what do, what do we do now? And Peter goes, guess what? I have a plan. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the tomb. We're going to bribe the guards. We're going to take this stone and we're going to roll away and we're going to steal Jesus' body. And then we're going to say that he rose from the grave. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And then what, Peter? And then what? And then... We're going to get brutally murdered. And then everybody's like, yeah, and they start dancing and high-fiving and doing, a, you know, Middle Eastern dances. And, 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 and then John is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you say that again, Peter? What, what, what are we going to do? He's like, okay, we're going to go to the grave. We're going to steal the body. We're going we're gonna to tell everybody that he rose from the grave. And then we're going to get persecuted and reviled and, and beaten and mocked and then murdered. And everybody starts cheering and dancing. That's a great idea, Peter. That's a great idea. Wow. And John's just sitting there like, wait a minute. Something's off here. And that's the point, though. Like, the comedian has the ability to present this. This is a very common argument 
that you know Christians make about you know the validity of the resurrection that hey like this is this is very unlikely that these disciples stole the body and and hoaxed the the resurrection and then they all just like got persecuted horribly and you know historically we know that they were they were killed they were martyred for their faith like that just doesn't make any sense and the comedian's able to put that in such a way where it's just obvious like duh that doesn't make any sense. And Paul even uses a type of argument like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ isn't been raised from the dead, we're all, you know, the most to be pitied. Like, go on, just eat and drink and be merry. If, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then what we're doing is pointless. Why would we do this? Why would we willingly be persecuted and suffer and be mocked and reviled and, and, and really to the point where we are probably going to die for this. Why would we do that? And so contextually, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians, you know, we see that Paul says in verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, the Thessalonians knew this, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So we can ask Paul the question, why Paul? Why did you have such boldness? encouraged to continue to proclaim this message amidst great conflict and suffering. You went from Philippi to Thess the Thessalonica where it really wasn't much better for you. Why were you so bold? And he gives us the answer in verse 3, 4. Here's the reason for our appeal. Does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So, really... You know, tonight, what we're going to look at, you know, as men called to proclaim the gospel, if we want to be faithful ministers in a negative world, that's part of our theme. This, we're ministering in a negative world now. If we want to be faithful ministers in a negative world, our message that we preach, it must be true. It can't spring from error. It must stem from pure motives. And it must utilize honest and open methods consistent with the gospel that we proclaim. And when we have a ministry like that, and we have a message like that, and motives like that, and methods like that, we'll have the boldness and the courage, like Paul, to continue to preach in the midst of much conflict, in the midst of a negative world, in a world that hates the message that we preach and hates us. So let's look at this, this first point, this first mark, really. Our message does not spring from, forth from air, but the truth. So the message that we preach is true. The gospel is true. Paul is saying that he's not lying. Not lying. He says that throughout his letters in various ways to different people. He's like, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. And so we're going to really look at four reasons why the gospel is true. Why what we say is true. And first we have to really ask the question, what is truth? What is truth? And, you know, there's all sorts of theories. You know, I started to dabble with ChatGBT a little bit. I, I asked ChatGBT, what is truth? And it gave me, you know, it wants to be kind of neutral, but it gives me, oh, here's all the, the different, you know, positions, like eight different positions on, on what truth is. And the one that Christians tend to put their hat in, though, say, well, this is generally the theory that we believe in. It's called the correspondence theory of truth. And it means that truth is that which corresponds to reality. That which corresponds to reality. And so the first reason why the gospel is true is really this, because it corresponds to reality. It corresponds to reality. 
Now, how does it correspond to reality? I, I, we could probably give a million reasons why it does. And under this, I, I'm going to put, well, one, it, it corresponds to how we experience reality. And we, we notice a lot, this a lot on the campus. We notice this in, in our culture. I mean, we live in a culture so charged about justice issues, about good and evil, about right and wrong. This group over here is evil. They're Nazis, and Nazis is bad, and this group over here is good. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the Israeli and, and Hamas thing is, is, is that. Justice. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's good? Who's bad? I mean, everybody is so charged up about justice, about evil, about guilt. And the gospel's all about that. The gospel's all about, you're guilty. There's a judgment day coming. It fits reality. It fits our experience of right and wrong, good and evil, a need for justice, a sense of justice, a conscience. It corresponds to reality because it actually is concerns and is about a real person, Jesus. He was a real person who really lived on the earth. He was real. He was real. And I would put under this camp then, the resurrection was real. He actually rose from the grave. He actually really, you know, was seen by over 500 people. This really happened. He actually and really fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament. He was actually born in Bethlehem to a virgin. That actually happened. It fits reality. You can go back and you can read those prophecies in the Old Testament. It's real. It corresponds to reality. The second reason that I want to give for why the gospel is true, how we can know it's true, is that the gospel is from the one and concerns the one through whom reality was created. And so when it comes to truth, the source matters. Now, I was just talking to John the other day, and I don't actually remember what we were talking about. I think we were talking about uh, science stuff and health stuff anyway. You know, you'll hear something that sounds improbable from someone. Like, ah, that might be true, that it's highly unlikely, but if it's from a really close friend or a really close family member that has a track record of being totally trustworthy, you tend to believe that actually what they're saying, even though it sounds like, ooh, I don't know if that's actually true, you're willing to say it's probably true, this person's trustworthy. Or if you hear something that off the face of it sounds totally probable, but it's from somebody that's a bit of a snake and you know they, they're just a devious, lying person and they've expressed that in life over and over. It's, even though this is a probable thing, it might be a lie. And so the, the, the source matters. And the source of the gospel is the one who created reality itself. Now, it makes me think of Pilate and Jesus in John 18 you know, and, and Pilate's questioning Jesus and he, and he wants to know this, this reality of him being the king of the Jews and he wants to know about his kingdom and, and, you know, Jesus talks about how his kingdom's not of this world and then he says, Jesus says, you know, I came, uh, I was born in this world to bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice and then Pilate asks one of the most important questions that anybody can ask in life and he asks, what, what is truth? What is truth? And, you know, right before that, Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate should have known that he should have asked the question, who is truth? He's standing right in front of truth itself. 
So if we go back to our philosophical definition, truth is that which corresponds to reality. Well, Jesus is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so truth really is anything that's true in this world, anything that's true in reality, really it corresponds to him who is truth itself. Everything that is true in reality, in this universe, corresponds to Jesus as the cause and as the source of all truth. So if we go back again to our definition, truth is that which corresponds to reality. Another thing that we can ask then if we want to continue to flesh this out is, well, it kind of raises the question if we want to be a little bit more uh, philosophical, well, what is reality? That's a good question. There's all, I asked ChatGBT that too, what's reality? And uh, ChatGBT came up with another big old list of all these different theories of what reality is. Is it just ideas in someone's mind? Is it, is it something that actually exists outside of us? Is it the materialist position where reality is just the physical? There's no immaterial. So what is reality? A definition of reality, a simple one is reality is that which actually exists. Which actually exists. So reality is that which actually exists. And so then we have to think, well, okay, existence, that which actually exists, that's what reality is. Well, where did existence come from? How did it actually, how does it exist? And we know if we think about material things, we can even just think about ourselves, we can think about human beings, there's a sufficient reason for our existence. Our parents came together at some time, they knew each other using the biblical language, we were conceived, and at that moment we came into existence. But before that, we didn't exist. But there was a sufficient reason. We can think about that with everything material. Uh, you know, it has to have a reason for its existence. And if we don't want to go down, a, we can't really, we can't go down a, an infinite regress of cause and effect. There has to be a beginning point where everything that exists had to get its existence from something. And what did it get it from? Well, it had to get itself, it had to get existence from something that is in its very essence, existence. And that is the classical conception of God. God is, in his essence, existence. We can call this the attribute of aseity. God is ase. He is life in himself. He exists necessarily because that is his very nature. It's existence. So God is, in, in all reality, God is reality itself. And all other reality that we experience receives its reality from God who is true reality, who is true existence. And then he gives everything else existence by speaking it into existence. So the philosophical or the, the theological term we use for this is participation. Everything participates in God because God is its source and its cause. And so he shares his abounding and perfect and infinite existence with creation. That's why it exists. So Christ, isn't this amazing? Christ is the creator. Christ is the creator. Christ is existence itself. And that's amazing. And we see this, that Christ is the creator throughout the New Testament. You know, three passages in particular, you know, I'm sure are coming to your memory. The first one is Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the, in, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were 
created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So I want you to hone in on the preposition through. All things were created through him. Listen to John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Logos. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made, what's the preposition? Through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the, prof by the prophets. But in these last days, he sp has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, Again, listen, through whom also he created the world. Through whom, whom? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this is very Trinitarian language. The Father speaks creation into existence with his word. And that word that the Father speaks is the divine logos. It is the Son. The Son is the word that the Father spoke to make reality. It's, it's unbelievable. And so if, if the word, if the divine logos is, you know, the, the word by which the Father created everything, the creation is through the word, made through the word, well, it is fitting then, the old theologians would say this, it is fitting then that the eternal Son, who is the word, would be the one to take on human flesh to then redeem creation. If creation was made through him, it's fitting that he would be the one then to redeem it, to renew it. So there's hypothetical questions that theologians like to ask. They ask, like to ask questions like, well, could the Father have been incarnate? Could the Spirit have been incarnate? Hypothetically, yes. But it's fitting that the Son be the one who takes on flesh because through him everything was made and through him again, Everything will be redeemed. And that is really insightful. So everything was, all of reality, all of existence that we experience, our very selves, our very natures as human beings, we were made through the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so the gospel, the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's from him. It's about his life, his incarnation, his His life living righteously, obeying the Father. It's about his death. It's about his resurrection. There's nothing more real than the gospel because it concerns the one who is ultimate reality, who is existence itself, through whom all things were made. There's nothing more real than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is amazing. Is the gospel real? Of course, is it true? Of course. Nothing corresponds with reality more than the gospel. It's amazing. Third reason why the gospel is true. The gospel changed you. The gospel changed you. And this is Paul's constant defense. If you go through the book of Acts, and he, he gets in front of these, these world leaders, he says... And now I make my apologia, my defense, my apologetic. What's my apologetic? What's my defense? And he almost always goes to his testimony. 
This is who I am. I mean, we could, we could look at it just for the sake of time. We won't, but Acts 22, 1 through 11, Acts 26, 9 through 18. He starts just telling these people, well, this is who I am. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I stuttered under Gamaliel, and I, and I was a, a Jew of Jews, and I was you know, righteous concerning the law, and I persecuted the church. I persecuted the way, and I hated them, and I, I, I watched the garments of the people that threw stones at, at, at Stephen, and I, I, that's who I was. That's what I did. And then I was on this road to Damascus, and then a bright light appeared, and the Lord spoke to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you kick against the goads? And so that is something that Paul almost always brings up when he's talking about the truthfulness of the gospel. He brings in his testimony. He says, this is who I was. This is who I am now. I hated the way, and now I preach the message of the way. And so Paul knows it's true because it changed him. He knows personally. It changed him. He had a, a personal experience with Jesus himself. He was taught the gospel from Jesus himself. So it's true because it changed you as well. And you know it's true because it changed you. You know you're what you were before you came to Christ. You know how you thought, how you felt. And then you knew that everything changed when you were confronted with the reality of your Savior and your Maker. And then the fourth reason, I'm sure there's more we could talk through, but the fourth reason why the gospel is true and why you can have boldness preaching it as Paul did is that it, ch it changed those to whom you have preached it. You've preached the gospel to people before, every single one of you in here, and you've seen people come to faith in Christ. You've seen people changed by it. It didn't just change you, but you've also witnessed people changed by that gospel, by this gospel, this message of truth. And Paul, that is what Paul is saying in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. Look back at chapter 1, starting in verse 4. He says, for you, we know, brothers, we know, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we were, we, uh, men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. They started to live righteously, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you how you turn to God from idols. Look at that. They turned to God from idols. There was a real change there to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul is even telling the Thessalonians, you know this is true. You know that what I was saying was true because you experienced a real change. You were, an idol, you were idol worshipers and now you're not. You lived unrighteously and now you're living a pure life following our example. And you have joy in the Holy Spirit even amidst great persecution. Wow. And you have the conviction of sin that comes from the Holy Spirit. It changed you. He says that also in verse 13 in chapter 2. And we also thank God constantly for this. 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Wow. So, those are four reasons why the gospel is true, how we can know the gospel is true. If it's reality, it's from and concerns the one who actually created reality. It changed you and it changed people that you've preached it to. That's pretty amazing. That brings us to our second point then. If we look at our text again, verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. So our appeal stems from what we could say is pure motives. Now often, this word impurity has a sexual connotation and it, and it, it likely probably has that connotation here. But there's all sorts of different impure motives. A greed is another one. A greed is another one that's very impure that there was a reputation among many you know, traveling preachers and teachers during that time that they were just in it for the money and they were in it for the sex. And that was very, very common. And look at verse 5 and 6. Paul kind of unpacks this a little bit more. He says, For we never came with words of flattery. Now, I'm not going to really unpack this flattery motive because Dan's going to touch on this on Thursday. As you know, he says, As you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So, Paul likely has sexual impurity in mind, but more importantly, he's kind of set up this impure motive of greed. And the traveling orders during that time, again, they were very common. It, it, you can think of like our, our musicians today who travels from city to city and puts on a performance that entertains us. It's, you know, it's the singers. It's the rock and roll artists and stuff. It's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We know the type of lifestyle that they live. They have a reputation for this. And so back then in the Greek culture, it was the orator. It was this philosopher who had the new idea and he used flattery and Dan will talk about that but he was in it for the money too. He was greedy and he was in it for the sex. So Paul is saying, I'm not like that. We're not like that. You know that. You've watched our conduct. You know that our motives are pure. You know that our motives are pure. So we're going to hone in on this reality of greed. You know, there is a stigma, even today, with the evangelist of, you know, the evangelist is greedy. He's in it for the money. And the tele-evangelists and the prosperity preachers have not helped. They're the ones that kind of really feel this stigma that's over the evangelist. And I'm sure every single one of you, when you tell people that you're an evangelist, some, a lot of them, they'll think, well, their first idea is the, the, the evangelist they see on TV. You know, it's funny. Paul is sat by a woman on the plane here who goes to Creflo Dollar's church. Uh, one of these kind of tele-evangelist, prosperity preacher guys who, you know, his big fame was that he needed to get that private jet for the sake of the gospel. But, you know, we can even think of guys that we would have respected. Think of Ravi. I mean, obviously, that's hard to hear though, but his life was a life of sexual immorality. And, and it, it's also hard to see that what his salary was from his RZIM, it was, an amaz- like, it was almost a million dollars a year he was getting. And it's hard to know that and go, huh. You know, Franklin Graham, I think between his two ministries, Samaritan's Person, the Billy Graham um, even uh, evangelism uh, organization, uh, together he's making three quarters of a million dollars in salary. And it's just like, hmm, there's something off about that. So we have this stigma over our heads that maybe we're in it for the money. 
Maybe we're in it for the money. Certainly that was the case in the first century church. Certainly that was the case in Thessalonica. Paul automatically, being a, a traveling orator, had this reputation of he's likely in it for the money. Yep. Now Paul tells Timothy in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many sense, senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now, I've argued before in writing, and I'll say it probably to the day I die, that I'm pretty confident that Timothy is a, an evangelist. I don't think he's a pastor. Uh, I don't think that the, the, the epistles, the letters that Paul writes to him should be called pastoral epistles. If anything, they should be called evangelist epistles or whatever. Uh, but Paul tells Timothy at the end, you know, do the work of the evangelist. So this kind of hits home because in the very next verse, Paul tells him, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. There's other things that he is to flee, you know, impurity, but flee greed, Timothy. Flee greed. You know, it's, it's destructive in everybody, but man, the, the, the man of God, the, the proclaimer of the gospel, the preacher, oh boy, is that destructive. Oh boy, is that destructive. Flee. Don't even be close to it. Get out of there. So, we can't have greedy motives. And yet, we're still those who Paul says in other places that, you know, the, the one who labors by the gospel should make his living. L labors in the gospel should make his living by the gospel. The labor is worthy of his wages. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. So we, we, we are to make a living by preaching the gospel. But that's different than being greedy. We're not preaching the gospel for the sake of getting money. God has so set it up that people... Brothers and sisters in the Lord understand that the world needs the gospel and we want to support this man so that he can do this full time. But we're not, we're not selling the gospel. That's really important. It's extremely important. And, and now sometimes Paul would even forego his right to make a living by preaching the gospel because he might recognize that it could be a hindrance in this certain city. And that was the case for the Thessalonians. He says in verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, he kind of expands on this. He goes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were, uh, when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. See, he's, he recognizes that we have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate for even... When we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So he forsook the right to you know, get money from the Thessalonians because he perceived that it might be a burden to them, but also because he perceived that there was a lot of laziness among these people. 
And he wanted to send an example for them. That this is what hard work looks like. This is what working with your hands looks like to earn an income so you can buy bread for yourself. And he, he does this with the Corinthians too. He perceives with the Corinthians that it would be a barrier to the gospel to, to get money from them. And ironically, this would become an accusation that the Corinthians would throw back at him for why he's not a real apostle. And so in 2 Corinthians, when he's defending his ministry, you know, it's, it's hilarious that these peddlers of God's word, these super apostles, they, they, they kind of throw at Paul. They get the Corinthians to believe, well, he's not a real apostle because if he was a real apostle, he'd be asking for money from you. Because we, these super apostles, we ask for money. And we ask for money because we're the real deal. And if he was the real deal, he would be getting money from you. But he's not. He's not the real deal then. Paul even says in you know, chapter 2, you know, who is sufficient for these things? To proclaim the gospel, to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Who is sufficient for this? But then he says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's <laughs> word. So that brings us back to this definitive th statement. The gospel is not for sale. We're not selling this message. We're not selling it. It's not why we're doing this. We're not salesmen. We're preachers. We're heralds. We're, as our organization is called, we're ambassadors for Christ. Indeed, Paul, one of the common expressions that he uses, or titles he uses, we're slaves of Christ. We're slaves of Christ. We're not salesmen. The gospel is a free message that we freely give no matter what. Preach in season and out of season. And the way you can think about this a little bit, of how ludicrous and crazy it would be to sell the gospel message, imagine that a friend of yours, he buys a bunch of Bibles, let's say from Crossway. It's all these really nice ESV Bibles. And he says, hey, uh, on your, your next trip overseas or whatever, I want you to give these Bibles out free of charge because I bought them already to anybody who needs them. And then this friend goes overseas with these Bibles that have already been purchased and he starts to peddle them. He starts to sell these Bibles. And you know, there's something just all off about that. So that's unjust. That's unjust. It's just, it's just injustice, so obviously. Another way to think about it, it's like, you know, the Mona Lisa is considered the, the most expensive painting in all the world to the point to where it's almost foolish to put a price tag on it. It's, it's priceless. But it's like selling the Mona Lisa for a dollar. Just, ah. Eww. No, no. So why is the gospel free? Why don't we sell this message? Well, it's because it's, it's already paid for by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. He already purchased salvation for all those who would believe in him. He purchased it, purchased it with his very blood, the blood of God. What dollar amount could compare to the blood of God, the innocent blood and righteous blood of Jesus Christ. And so we don't peddle this gospel. It was already purchased by Jesus Christ. Salvation was purchased. We were purchased. Our souls were purchased by him. And so we freely proclaim it. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are heralds. We are preachers of a king who has saved us and richly lavished us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How could we sell this? And so we're not in it for the money. We're not greedy. It's not our motive. Now, there's more false motives, though, impure motives than is given in our text. 
we can think of Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And this is a real subtle one because likely the person who is peddling a message is, is someone probably proclaiming a false message, more than likely. But here we have an interesting case where somebody is preaching a true message but for false motives. So Paul says, verse 12, chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So, we are given more impure motives, envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. Oh, and this is, a, this is an insidious and, and really a, a deceptive one that we can maybe even feel in our own hearts as ministers of the gospel. We see a brother in the Lord who is getting more invitations to preach somewhere. And oh man, he got to preach to thousands. And man, I just had to preach to you know, five people this one day. Or man, I haven't got invited to go to a place in months. What's going on? And oh, Joe Smolver, he's, he's preaching everywhere. He's getting asked to go overseas and da-da-da-da-da. And we just start to feel, ah, this rivalry. Like we're in a competition. We're like, who can win the more, most souls? And we're in this competition with each other. And, and that's just, that's not the right motive. That's a wicked motive. Because we're all a part of the same body. We're all doing it for the, hopefully, for the same end, the glory of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. When our brother or sister wins somebody to the Lord, we all win. We all shall rejoice. The angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. And so we shall rejoice too. And, and when we don't, it's likely because there is that seed of rivalry in us, that seed of envy. And it's crouching at our door and we need to conquer it. We need to master it. We cannot be envious people, especially as ministers. And I think of uh, the example that I, I always go back to whenever I start to feel that inkling in me is, is Peter in John 21. And Jesus is in a sense restoring Peter to the ministry and you know, Jesus, do you lo uh, Peter, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you, Lord. You know that I love you. You know everything. And then he explains how Peter is going to die. <laughs> and we get that parenthetical statement. This is, you know, Jesus explained how Peter is going to die to glorify him. And then Peter does this stupid thing as he tends to do. <laughs> and he looks at John and he says, what about him? How's he going to die? <laughs> How is he going to die? And Jesus goes to Peter, basically, what about him? What is that to you if he never dies? You follow me, Peter. You follow me. And then obviously John tells us that there was then a rumor that went around that this apostle, John, that Jesus loved was never going to die. But obviously that, you know, was just a rumor. It wasn't true. John eventually died. I mean, he did live the longest of all the apostles. But nevertheless, what did Peter do? Immediately into rivalry in comparison. 
and we look over at our brother and we go, oh, what about, look at him. Why, Lord, why, why does he get to do that? Why did he get to lead that person to Christ and not me? And so Jesus' words to Peter are the same to us. What's that to you? You, you follow me. You look at me. Have the blinders on. I have written a story and a path for you that's different than everybody else. I'm going to lead you on it. And everybody's going to be a little bit different. Everybody has different good works that I'm going to lead them in. So don't look around. You follow me. You follow me. And so we need to do the same because I know that envy and rivalry and selfish ambition can well up in us even when we're preaching the true message. These, these people in Philippi, they were preaching the true message, but they were doing it out of rivalry. But what are the pure motives that Paul lists then? Well, love and goodwill. We preach with the motive of love, love of God and love of neighbor. We have to have a broken heart for the lost like, like Paul did in the beginning of Romans 9 where he, he wishes that he could be accursed if his brethren, his, his fellow Jew could be saved. I would be accursed if you would save them. We need to have a broken heart like that, a heart of love. That's our motive. Goodwill. And ultimately, as Wallace was preaching this mor morning, we, we preach out of the, the motive of glorifying God. Glorifying God. That's why we're doing this. Back to 2 Corinthians 2. This fragrance, this aroma, this gospel is the, this pleasing aroma to God. Whether a message from life to life or death to death. Whether we preach to somebody who rejects the gospel or we preach the gospel to somebody who accepts it, it's still a pleasing aroma to the Lord and He delights in it. He smells it in heaven and He delights in the message itself because it's true. It glorifies Him and so... We proclaim this message because it pleases our maker. It pleases him. We do it out of love. We do it out of goodwill. We do it for the glory of God. So that brings us third and finally to the point that our appeal utilizes honest and open methods. Honest and open methods. We're not tricking anybody. We're not deceiving anybody. It doesn't even make sense anyway. We're, we're preaching a true message. Why would we have to use trickery? And yet we can start to drift into that sometimes. But why might our methods lack integrity? Well, I think that one of the biggest reasons, I'm sure there's a number, but one of the biggest reasons for me as I think about this is because of bad theology. It's because of bad theology. And I think that theology really is the fulcrum of our methods. Depending on where the fulcrum touches the lever, our methods are going to shift one way or the other. And we see this really displayed really well in history with Charles Finney and Asahel Nettleton. You had Nettleton who was of the old way, uh, a revivalist in a sense, and, and Finney was, was the new way of revivalism, of this certain method and means and Finney even said, I quote, a revival is not a miracle. It is the result of the right use of the appropriate means. And, you know, he was, he, he was against the Westminster Confession. He was a rebel in every way. Uh, he considered the doctrines of total depravity, the imputation of Adam's sin, the need for divine satisfaction in the atonement of Christ, and the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating sinners contrary to reason. 
And those are fundamental doctrines to our faith. And he thinks they are contrary to reason. He was adamant that man had the ability to come to Christ by his own volition and power. He says that regeneration consists in the sinner changing his ultimate choice, intention, preference. When mankind becomes truly religious, they are not enabled, so not enabled to put forth exertion which they were unable before to put forth. They only exert powers which they had before in a different way and use them for the glory of God. Finney argues, I insist that our reason was given us for the very purpose of enabling us to justify the ways of God and that no such fiction of imputation could by any possibility be true. He said that. In his memoirs, Finney states that his two personal goals, they related to two battles. And he says the first was to defeat sinners by his campaigns for Christ. Great, that sounds great. But the second one was to destroy Calvinism. That was one of his goals in his ministry and in his life. And his bad theology led to what's called the New Measures Controversy. Quote, I found that something was needed to make an impression on them, that they were expected at once to give up their hearts, something that would call them to act and act publicly before the world as they had in their sins, something that would commit them publicly to the service of Christ. And that led to uh, these new measures, and one of those new measures is the anxious seat. We all know of the anxious seat. And we all know that Billy Graham kind of stole that methodology a bit in, in calling people to walk the aisle and come forward and and they, they would have the Billy Graham, you know, crusades, they would have the, the ushers walk the aisle at first to start to create that momentum. And that was tended to be drawn from Finney. Now, Finney and Nettleton met on two private occasions, and Nettleton then writes to a minister recounting these meetings with Finney, and he says, and recounting these revivals that were going on, he says, we do not call into question the genuineness of those revivals, or the purity of the motives of those who have been most active in them. I think he's being generous. But he says, But the evils to which I allude are felt by the churches abroad. Members which have gone out to catch the Spirit and have returned, some grieved, others soured, and denouncing ministers, colleges, theological seminaries, and have set whole churches by the ears and kept them in turmoil for months together. Some students of divinity have done more mischief in this way than they can ever repair. He goes on to say, the evil is running in all directions. A number of the churches have experienced a revival of anger, wrath, malice, envy, and evil speaking without the knowledge of a single conversion, merely in consequence of a desperate attempt to introduce these measures. Those ministers and Christians who have heretofore been most and longest acquainted with revivals are most alarmed at the spirit which has grown out of the revivals of the West. The friends of Brother Finney are certainly doing him and the cause of Christ great mischief. They seem more anxious to convert ministers and Christians to the peculiarities than to convert souls to Christ. So, bad theology tends to lead to bad methods. Finney was certainly more of the Pelagian grain and it showed in how he would do revivals and how he would preach. He saw it as just a, a matter of means and not a work of the Spirit. Now, bad theology goes the other way too. Around the same time, a little bit earlier, you know, in the 1700s, we have uh, many Christians wrapped up in hyper-Calvinism, which is another doctrinal error, bad theology, where people thought that, well, 
God is sovereign. He's elected who he's going to save. He'll save the heathen. We don't need to be a part of this. He doesn't need us to help or to participate with him. He'll save the heathen if he's going to save the heathen. We don't need to do foreign missions. And obviously that leads to William Carey. In 1972, he writes this famous work. It's a long title, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens in which the Religious State of the Different Nations of the World, the Success of Former Undertakings, and the Practicability of Further Undertakings are Considered. And so he starts the Baptist Mission Society in England, and he goes on mission. And his philosophy of mission was widespread preaching, distribution of the Bible in the vernacular, church planning, in-depth study of non-Christian religions, and ministerial training. Uh, I would say amen to that philosophy of missions. And so you have, you know, you have different ditches in a sense. You have this kind of Pelagian, uh, Arminian ditch where, well, everybody just has in them the ability to repent and believe and the spirit doesn't need to do a miraculous regenerating work. And then you have the other ditch of God is so sovereign that we don't need to participate with God in this, even though he has commanded clearly in scripture that we are to make disciples of all nations. And he's clearly said that faith comes from hearing the gospel preached from one who is sent. And so there's different ditches and we must be people who know our Bibles well, know theology well, so that our method is consistent with the gospel that we proclaim. That God both uses us and has decreed to use us in preaching and saving the lost. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God is the one that saves. God is the one that saves. We don't need to manipulate. We don't need to coerce. We don't need to force conversion. And I think, as we come to the end of this now, I think an illustration... An example, it, 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 you wouldn't think of going here for an illustration or example of the in, uh, an inappropriate use of means. But we're going to go to Numbers 20. I want you to flip over to Numbers 20. And if you remember from Numbers 20, this is with Moses and the rock. The waters of Meribah. Starting in verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assembly, assemble the congregation, and you, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, listen to this, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Verse 10, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. <laughs> shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. 
And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Means and methods matter, even if the result might be the same. And this is just fascinating. God commands Moses, tell the rock to give forth, to bring forth its water. Tell it. Invite it out with your words, Moses. And Moses is all mad and grumbly at these people. And he takes the staff and he beats the rock twice. And it gushes out water. It was in there. But he didn't tell it to come out. He didn't invite it to come out. And for that very reason, God says, guess what, Moses? You're not, good to go. You're not going into the promised land. You were a faithful leader all these years. This one minor mistake. You got the results. You got the water out. But you beat the rock with the staff. And what he said, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. That actually affected the way that people viewed God because of the means. And so we can draw out this analogy, this illustration. When we preach, we preach a a true gospel. And it convicts, and it divides, and it's offensive. But we invite. There's a way that we preach it, though. There's a way that we preach it. And we invite them to believe in Jesus Christ. We persuade them. Paul often uses that. I I tried to persuade you. I persuaded you. Mm -hmm. And there's a gentleness about it too. And and a love in it. And a a concern. And a broken heartedness. We're not just bashing people with a stick. And so what could happen is this person could be uh, a lost sheep. And you preach the true message. But you do it in kind of a bashing way. And they convert truly. They truly convert. Moses got the water out of the rock. He really did. But it would have came out if he just invited it out. But what happens if you bash the rock and out comes blood and you mistake the blood for water? And that tends to happen. You coerce, you force, you manipulate with certain means and tactics and methods. The anxious seat or something else. The lighting, the fog, the lasers, the certain music makes me think of a famous atheist named Matt Dillahunty, and he recounts when he was a teenager, he was at a Christian uh, conference, and he was feeling all these feels, and there was this music, and everything was, you know, really emotive, and, and he's telling his friend, man, I feel blah, 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 like, oh, crazy, you're forking, and his friend's like, that's the Holy Spirit, you're saved. And the very next day, or the very next week, he's in his car, he's like 16 years old driving, and all of a sudden a classic rock song comes on, which is totally depraved in lyrics, and he feels the same exact feeling. And he goes, oh, that wasn't real. That wasn't the spirit. I'm an atheist. None of this exists. And so we don't coerce. We don't manipulate. The gospel will save. The gospel will save. We don't need to bash with a stick. And what might happen is we might mistake blood for water. And that's what tends to happen. You look at Finney, and there was all sorts of conversions, supposedly. And then you go back a year later, and we're like, where are the people? 
The churches have no more members than they did before. And often there was accounts that some of these cities were more depraved than they were before Finney came. Mm -hmm. The wrong method, the wrong means. So I want us to chew on that. I want us to think about that. Obviously that brings us to the end of our text. And so just as a refresher again, why can we have boldness to proclaim this message in the midst of a negative world, in the midst of conflict and persecution? Well, one, because it's true. It's true. And hopefully, because we've been given faith and given the Spirit, we have pure motives. We actually preach out of love with a broken heart for the lost and a desire to glorify our Maker. And three, we can be bold because we know that our methods are honest and open and we're not coercing or forcing or tricking anybody. And that's how we should approach our ministry in this world moving forward. So let's pray. Lord, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would search our hearts. I think of David in Psalm 139. Search our hearts, O Lord. See if there be any grievous or wicked way within us, Lord, and lead us into the way of everlasting. Lord, you know everything about us, as David declared. Lord, you know our sitting down and our rising up. You know our end from our beginning. Lord, you knit us together in our mother's womb. Lord, you have prepared good works for us before we even existed, Lord, and you're leading us into them, Lord. So search us. Search us, Lord, and reveal to us if there be any error in the message we preach. Reveal to us if there be any impurity in our motives as we preach and reveal to us, Lord, if our methods, the way that we preach, are erroneous and wrong. And Lord, let us be faithful ministers that truly glorify you in everything that we do and say. In your name we pray, amen.